0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray as we stand together. Heavenly Father, we do indeed praise you that you are a God who speaks. Uh, We thank you for the splendour of your word, the word about your Son, uh, the word about our King, who is indeed our mighty God, as we have sung the Lord of everything, our Emmanuel, the great I am, the Prince of Peace, the Lamb, the living God, our saving grace who reigns forever, the Ancient of Days. Father God, we do praise you for the word that reveals him to us and we pray that by your spirit uh, you would again show us uh, how glorious and mighty he is tonight. And uh, we pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, please turn back in your Bibles to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which was on page 672. And uh, just uh, as a forewarning uh, to let you know that we're actually going to look at chapter 7 over two weeks. uh, Preacher's prerogative, I've uh, decided to take two weeks to look at this chapter. We're still going to end the series at the same point, so we'll sort that out as we go along. But uh, chapter 7, we're only going to get to uh, verses 1 to 10 tonight. So you might have, uh, as we were reading it uh, together tonight, have had some questions about some of the later verses. Uh, you'll have to come back next week as we explore uh, those together. So uh, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 7, page 672. As we continue uh, this journey that we've been in really since the, the start of the year through this uh, book of Ecclesiastes, uh, 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 An uncomfortable book at times, a book that uh, really, whatever life we imagine we're living in 2012, uh, however we imagine that life to be, Ecclesiastes is like the the stiff coffee we need to wake us up from that dream, to show us life as it really is. Uh, Along the way, we've been given a a very clear picture of what our world is like, uh, of life under the sun, as the teacher in Ecclesiastes puts it. And it is, as I've said, a picture that is often uncomfortable, a picture that we want to look away from again and again. But it is a picture, if we've been listening and seeing it clearly, that has echoed again and again our own experience of what it's like to live under the sun. A life that is at every turn frustrating. And limited and fleeting, and ultimately, as we've seen again and again throughout this book, ultimately rendered futile by death. And so, given this, given this constant reminder, this constant picture that this book has given us, how do you actually live in a world like that, that is frustrating and limited? How do you navigate your way through life under the sun and navigate a straight path through all of that? Well, tonight the teacher is going to demolish, I think, and then rebuild one of the key ways we try to do just that. We try to navigate our way through uh, what is often difficult living conditions. Uh, How do we do it? Uh, What's our answer to master life under the sun? Well, again and again, I think our answer is wisdom, knowledge. Uh, The way to master life is to become an expert at life to get clued up about life under the sun, to know enough that I'll be able to calm the chaos all around me, that I will sit almost on top of life, mastering all its complexities. And with the right knowledge, uh, I can have the power to live that sort of life, because after all, knowledge is power. Now, we all do this. We all use knowledge to navigate our way through life uh, at the simplest level all the way up to the, the uh, national level. At the sort of the personal level, I've experienced uh, the, the attempt to use knowledge to, uh, to calm the chaos. This week, uh, Elizabeth, my wife, has been away uh, Monday to Thursday this week uh, on a conference. She left me alone uh, with our four children. And uh, let me tell you, chaos describes uh, what ensued over these, uh, these three days, alone uh, with my own children. But what she did for me, uh, which was very important, and I'd asked her very, very pleadingly to do this, is she'd written me a list. A list of all the things I needed to do at any point in the week at a, a, with any child. Uh, as long as I followed the list, everything was going to be fine. Well, that's what I thought anyway. Uh, the only points in the week that were calm and not chaotic was when uh, either they were asleep or they were in someone else's care. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no plan lasts into the battle. No knowledge, no uh, uh, sort of expertise uh, lasts into the battle, especially when you hand uh, the job to a man. But if we're wise enough, that's what we think. If we're wise enough regarding life, life under the sun, we'll be able to straighten it out, won't we? Uh, In our time, I think knowledge has become a god. Uh, We've gone through the cultural revolution, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. We now live in the information revolution. Uh, The most studied subject is information technology. The most valued commodity is knowledge uh, we see it at all levels of human experience, the, the knowledge of science. We are convinced as humans that we are on the edge of understanding everything, just on the edge. It's a little bit like our money and wealth that we saw last week. We think if we just had a little bit more, we can control everything. We do the same with scientific knowledge. If we just know a tiny bit more, we will have mastered the universe. And I saw uh, an amazing show on TV late uh, last Sunday night called Orbit, I think it was the first of three, it's on again uh, tonight, a wonderful show giving us a knowledge of the nature and effect of the earth's orbit around the sun. But what was fascinating and it's well worth looking at the show, both seeing the uh, the first bit if you've got uh, iPlayer, seeing the repeat and then watching it uh, later tonight if you're at home, is uh, how very quickly as the show went on, it went for about an hour, we went from just amazing facts, amazing information, detailed information about our world to the point of pure speculation as it became obvious uh, even with all their knowledge and understanding the experts who were who were comparing the show they had reached the limits reached the limits of what they understood and it became uh, at best speculation but even then we think we've almost cracked it perhaps the next generation will find out those things that we're a bit fuzzy on and then we'll have mastered life under the sun it's not just in science, we do it with uh, education, our prized commodity in our culture. You want to win an election big, well then promise big on education. Now, Barack Obama uh, in uh, the US, is, uh, one of his policies uh, leading up to the uh, upcoming election is to have every child go through college. If every child goes through college, uh, America will be empowered, uh, everything will be okay, life will be straightened out. And then we do it at a personal level. Uh, the sale of uh, self-help books is still astronomical. Now, you've got a bad kid, a bad job, uh, a bad back, a bad diet, a bad shape, uh, a bad marriage, buy a book. Get clued up. And then you'll have the power to straighten life out. Now that's how we view the equation of life under the sun. Problem with life under the sun, uh, get knowledge equals solution, QED. Knowledge is God. It can give us what we crave most, and that is power. Power to control life, power to be self-determining creatures. Well, listen to the teacher from Ecclesiastes, one who, if you remember as we began this book, has observed all of life under the sun at a huge level. Uh, Yes, you're right, he says. There is wisdom to be gained under the sun. Wisdom, uh, knowledge, he says in this chapter, is is like a good inheritance. It's like coming into money. It's the sort of thing that can set you up for life. Uh, Wisdom is like a shelter that will protect you from many of life's storms. But wisdom, he says, is not found in the places we go searching. We look for wisdom that is uh, ultimately limited, but we look for wisdom that uh, places in our hands what we want, control. And so we do. We go to science or to the academy or to personal development. But the teacher says in chapter 7, you want to find wisdom? You need to look in places that will lead you in the opposite direction altogether. That's where wisdom starts. Not in the place of human power, but weakness. Not in the place of human control, but dependence. Now, let me ask you a question as we head out on chapter 7. When do you think in life you were at your most wise? Uh, that you were at the peak of knowledge? That you were closest to mastering life? When was that point for you? Uh, where things made the most sense? Well, here's our teacher's answer to that question. He's going to give us three places where he gained rich wisdom. And they're not in the science lab or the classroom or the self-help section of Amazon. Now, here's the first of them, verses 1 to 4. He says, wisdom is found in embracing suffering. You want to understand life? Well, when suffering comes, says the teacher, embrace what can be learnt from it. The teacher isn't suggesting in these verses to uh, seek out suffering. Uh, In other words, that you want to become more and more wise and seek out more and more suffering. No, as we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, and we know in our own experience of life under the sun, you don't need to seek it out. For this is a broken and bent world. Suffering will come. And this room is filled with testimonies to prove that. We have our stories and each of them matters, even tonight, hearing of it. I suggested as a church family, we've many who've experienced much suffering in recent times. Just this afternoon at three o'clock, I led the memorial service for this church family, a service that uh, is the only service that I felt too many were there. And at the point of the service where we remembered those who had been lost, that was a part of the service that took far too long. Too many names. A Nigerian poet once wrote this. He said, when suffering knocks at your door and you say there's no seat for him, he tells you not to worry because he's bought his own. The teacher says, when it comes, don't run. Sit a while. There is wisdom here. He uh, lets us in gently with this uh, first example in verse 1 by beginning with an obvious comparison. You see it there in chapter 7, verse 1? He says, a good name is better than fine perfume. Who's going to argue about that? Clearly, one is better than the other. No amount of Calvin Klein or Chanel No. 5 can cover over a person who stinks on the inside. A good name is better. It's obvious. Yes, as the teachers. Well, so is this comparison. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, as we've gone through Ecclesiastes together, the teacher has said some pretty confronting things, but I think this is the most off the reservation he's got. How can the day of death be better than the day of birth? Because the day of birth is spectacular. I've had the privilege uh, four times over of seeing a new human born into this world as my children were born. And let me tell you, that moment is wow. Wow. And I did nothing. (laughs) I just sat there, literally the first time I sat there, where Liz and I had all sorts of plans when Finn was born, birth plans, there was going to be calm music playing, there was going to be back rubs, there was going to be encouraging words from Andrew, had it all planned out. Uh, Very quickly, as as, uh, the pain took over and the struggle took over, I was told to sit in the corner and be quiet. (laughs) But the day of birth is a spectacular day. It is filled with overflowing potential. There is, uh, for a new life, no line on the horizon, just potential. So much possibility, so many plans, so many hopes. I remember simply saying to Finn, my firstborn child, welcome to the world, little man. But hear this from the teacher. The day of birth is good, it's very good. But the coming day of death is better by far. And here's why. Because that's the day that stops the bluster. That's the day that stops the pretense that says, I am the master of my own destiny. I am a self determining creature. It is the day that says, Andrew, you are utterly powerless. That every breath I take is owned by another, not me, and he is in charge. It's the day when I see the reality of life under the sun in sharp relief. I die. The road ends. And as that day comes close, I'm told here, it is so much better for my soul and your soul because it is the day that says you need a way out of this and you ain't got a clue. No knowledge, no science, no education, no book is going to help you. Death is hurtling at you and you have no answer and being okay with death is not an answer because life, like the day of birth, is very, very good and that it ends is rubbish. It's horrible to the core. And so the teacher says, embrace the coming day of death because it is a day that tells you the truth. No, you are not all potential with no line on the horizon. You are ultimately powerless before this enemy. And that is where for us wisdom begins. He continues in verse 2 on a corporate level. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Again, he's comparing two good things. How good is the house of feasting and laughter? Now, do you know that experience of great meals with friends, uh, meals that uh, you savour because of who was there and what you ate? I've uh, uh, got many like that burning in my memory. My 30th birthday at Beach on the central coast of New South Wales with my best friends in the world, barbecued fish and, and meat. Wonderful. Or great Christmases with family members, perhaps. Or just the impromptu gatherings with friends where you laugh so hard your sides ached. How good are those moments? But here's the thing about the house of feasting. It is a good place, but you can't live there. But it's the place, the very place I think our culture under the sun wants to live. The endless party, the endless joke. You see it in the world of our media and in the world of celebrity or in Uh, So much of uh, the student life defined by how epic the weekend was. We live for the party. Even sometimes family life. We want the feast. We want the celebration. We don't want that to end. Uh, So we pack all of our hopes and dreams into that Christmas meal with family. Even though uh, Sunday afternoon uh, we're still the same family with all our fractures under the sun. The house of feasting and laughter are good. But hear this, says the teacher, living under the sun... The house of mourning is better by far, because like the day of death, it is a house where you hear the truth, that there are things we can't control and know they're not funny, they're heartbreaking. It is the house where I see some sorrow lies too deep for tears and needs a comfort that nothing under the sun can give me. Wise men and women walk into funerals and not only mourn, but use those moments to look at their own lives and ask, what am I to make of all of this? The teacher says, I've been to a lot of parties, and remember what we saw about him earlier in chapter 1, he really has. But it was the funerals where I grew wise. In the end, he says to us in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. And I reckon we need to help each other with this. Because the default response, even amongst Christians to life under the sun, even when this is not the case, is how's life? I'm fine. Sometimes a sad face under the sun is good for the heart, and not just our heart, but the hearts of those around us, because it says to them, I'm just like you. I too am powerless and frustrated and broken and in need of rescue. I'm not fine. So let me ask you, do you live life in light of death? Do you live life backwards? Do you live life knowing that that is certain and then enjoy every precious moment, every precious gift that comes to God, from God to you? But seeing the limit of those things, seeing how, how, how much they disappear like vapor, do you feel the weight of your lack of control? Well, let me sharpen this for the parents here. Do you prepare your children for death? Not just for dreams and potential and plans, but for the powerlessness. Are your children ready not only to live in this life under the sun, but to die? Are they ready to look for rescue, not in themselves or in science or academy or achievements, but beyond the sun? Because here's why for the Christian the day of death is better. When, the Christian, when you are a Christian, you live life in light of the one from beyond the sun, Jesus. We live aware, yes, and very seriously that we live under the shadow of death, but we live under that shadow by the light of the one who has overcome it. Now here's the power of the resurrection of Jesus as we head towards another Easter, this mighty moment when he rose from the dead, the day, the only day under the sun when death worked backwards, when by his mighty wisdom God raised his son. You see, the resurrection isn't just God's party trick to prove He is God. It does prove that, but more than that, for us, for those who bind themselves to Jesus who say, "I'm with you, you're my rescue." But for us, we have the wonderful promise that for us too, death will work backwards. The day of death is better because it forces me to cry out for rescue, and his answer, the one from beyond the sun, is this: "This will not end in death. I am the resurrection and the life. And so when suffering knocks at your door and you say there is no seat for him and he tells you, don't worry, I've brought my own. Well, behold the one from beyond the sun, behold Jesus Christ, who sat on that seat for you and with you. Here is a love from beyond the sun, an incarnate love, a love that comes under the sun, into the mess and the frustration of this world, the pain and the sin, even death. A love that endured the cross for the joy of being able to say, this will not end in death. Wisdom is found in embracing suffering. Here's the second place he says wisdom is found. Verses 5 and 6, wisdom is found in heeding rebuke. Verse 5, it is better to heed a, a wise man's rebuke than listen to the song of fools. You want to learn wisdom, you'll learn more, the teacher says, by being humbled by a rebuke than lauded by praise. The wise rebuke does for us the same thing the coming day of death does. It stops the pretense. The pretense that says, I'm perfect, I'm the complete article, I'm just fine as I am. A rebuke reminds me that, no, I'm inadequate. I'm not the finished product. It tells me I'm in need of change and it forces me to see that I don't have the power to change I don't know about you, but I reckon heeding rebuke is hard, real rebuke. Uh, most of us, uh, when we're rebuked or seriously challenged by people, we go through sort of stages of response. We start with first outright denial, that's rubbish. And when finally that defence comes down because they're actually telling the truth, uh, we go for all that attack. Uh, you think I've got problems? Well, you've got problems too. So perhaps while we're spending quality time on problems, let's spend some time on your problems. But if they persist, so sometimes that gets rid of them. But if they persist, we go into active disinterest. I'm just, just confessing here. This is this is me. You might not do this. Active disinterest, where we're almost in sleep mode. The computer, the screen is shut down. We're sort of listening, but uh, it's as if we're saying, uh, "You can talk to the hand because the face ain't listening." But finally, sometimes we quit the pretense. We let go of our need to control the situation or fear of being exposed or being diminished and we actually listen, feeling the weight of rebuke and search for a way to change. The teacher says, instead of some elaborate kung fu defence against rebuke, why don't you try listening? For a wise rebuke is so much better for you than another fool singing your praise. Well, that's hard. Because the praise of the crowd, the regard of others, the laughter of friends is hard to resist. But such sounds won't tell you that you are broken and in need of repair. And so let me ask you tonight to consider your friends, those you let close, those who are around you, your crew. Who are they? Are they those who are blindly loyal to you? Which is in the end of no help to us. Are they your cheer squad? Uh, maybe not literally, although it does sound nice, this idea of songs of praise, people walking around a sort of a choir surrounding you, praising you, but just people who enough uh, constantly, just uh, enough times are telling you how, how great you are. Or are they those who say, bring on the clown, uh, friends who love that you make them laugh? Well, tell me, do you know people who are beyond criticism, who never come out from behind their defences when rebuked? And even if they do, they quickly rally back. And part of their defence is to surround themselves with friends who will sing songs of praise to them. Know anyone like that? Are you like that? Such a person under the sun is a fool. Well, let me ask it a different way. Do you have people who are close to you who will wound you in love? with wise rebuke. It is as Proverbs says, the wounds of a friend are to be trusted much. Deep, real friends who are prepared, if you like, to walk into the throne room of your little kingdom and say there is a problem and uh, you're the problem. Let me ask you in terms of your experience of this church family, many of us are in small groups, is your small group like that? Our groups need to be places where I look across the lounge room or the table and I see a brother or sister in Christ who is utterly for me, committed to my good, and sometimes that will mean they will apply the sword of the word of God in a rebuke against me, and it will sting. But unless my defences are down, I will not grow humble, nor will I change. And many of our small groups, uh, may our small groups not be places where we just gather to sing songs of praise, covering over our need to change, but places where wise rebuke is set in love and received with humility. Only a rebuke will cause me to examine my life properly, to see the problem and to search beyond myself for the answer. Only then in wisdom will I go to God, as James 4 calls me to, when he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Wisdom is found in heeding rebuke. one final place the teacher tells us of, verses 7 to 10, wisdom is found in resisting temptation. Have you noticed uh, in this uh, life under the sun with all its frustrations that our temptations grow as the frustrations and the exhaustion of life under the sun grows? Uh, The more that grows, the more temptations we experience. And uh, the teacher gives us some examples here in verses 7 to 10 of the sort of temptations that we will face with life under the sun as it is. Here's the first uh, verse 7, greed. And we saw it last week, this yearning for our money to be the solution to our problems that will make straight the path under the, under the sun if we just had a little bit more. But what if just getting a little bit more is actually beyond our grasp? There's nothing we can do to do that, except perhaps if we're willing to compromise, to cut corners, our temptation perhaps at work to reduce integrity, to gain our promotion or profit. A temptation to smooth over the details on the tax return. But we're told here that such a temptation will disease your heart. A heart that is meant to be satisfied in God, content in Him, will actually grow more and more empty and hungry. But a wise life holds wealth and the gaining of it as just a gift not a God and so when tempted to have that little bit more by means of compromise we will say no because our heart belongs to another already now here's another one verse 8 he talks about giving up in pride the frustrations and exhaustions and setbacks of life under the sun can lead us to just give up rather than dependently and patiently persevere can be lots of things that the frustrations and the limitations can cause us to give up. Give up on our marriage or give up on work or give up on a project or give up on church. Give up because we're too proud to call for help or because life should be easier than this. But the teacher says, only a fool thinks that way. Only someone who has forgotten that they are a creature living under the sun in a world that is subject to frustration see, God has designed life under the sun that way. Not so that we give up on pride, or our marriage, or our job, or some ministry, or even our walk with the Lord. No, not to give up, but to reach the point where our reserves, our knowledge, our wisdom, our strength, our faithfulness has run out well short of the destination. And then lead heavily in all our dependent weight on the one from beyond the sun. The author and perfecter of our faith who says of his project in our lives, I began a good work in you, I will carry it through to completion. Here's the third one, verse 9, responding in anger. And there's so much frustration and limitations in life under the sun that that can be our defense, our response is to be angry. Angry. Whether it be relationships, as we saw earlier in Ecclesiastes, are relationships that are often frustrating or limited or disappointing, and anger is the response. Or even, as we saw just earlier in this chapter, the response to rebuke. But we're told here anger is an obvious and foolish defence. Anger is ultimately a self-defeating defence. And listen to these wise words from Friedrich Buchener. He says of the temptation of anger, he says, anger is possibly the most fun temptation. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savour the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back, in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, though, is what you are feasting on is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And one final one, and I think the most uh, stinging of them all, of the temptations, verse 10. The temptation in this frustrating life under the sun to always be looking back. Such a great verse. Verse 10. Why were the old, don't say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Uh, how we need to hear this. Now, one of the hardest things about life under the sun is it keeps changing. It isn't just uh, that the globe spins, our whole life seems to spin. Uh, new contexts, new complications, new frustrations that we weren't expecting. It is as Job says, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. How hard it is to see time change things in our lives. Uh, things that we're powerless to control, especially if in our perception, or even in reality, they're a change for the worse. We long for the good old days in our health or our family life or work life, even church life, the good old days. Well, let me ask you this. If you are someone here tonight, which I'm hoping is most of us, who knows the story the Bible tells, the big story, the wide-sweeping story it tells of our world... Do you ever think there has ever been a good old day? No. Well, once. Genesis 1 and 2 speak of those good old days. Good days, very good days uh, of the world at birth, a world filled with wonder and possibility. Very good days. But since those days, since we disconnected ourselves from the very author of life, from the giver of all good gifts, each day that has followed that fall has been one bad day after another, ultimately. Days lived under the sun now, days lived under death. If the temptation for us is to always look back, then the teacher says wisdom comes in resisting that temptation to always pine for the past. Instead, look forward But not to some sort of over-realised view of your future life under the sun, what next year is going to be like. It's going to be so much better next year. But to your real future, the one your God has prepared for you. Your future, when all of this world under the sun, we're told in Hebrews, will be wrapped up like a blanket by the one from beyond the sun, the one who will come and make his home with us. Then we will no longer say, why were the old days better than these? We won't even say it of the first days because of these amazing words then we will see a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away then there will be no more chaos or frustration or these limitations that we feel then we will see the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband we'll hear a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of god is with men And he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then we will feel him wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or frustrations or futility for the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is um, so easy to think that uh, uh, we are big enough and smart enough, cluey enough to figure it all out. Uh, That if we just have enough knowledge, if we just plan well enough, that we will straighten out life under the sun. Uh, Father, help us to abandon uh, that foolishness and instead run to the one from beyond the sun who has declared, I am making all things new. And so, Father, we pray that that would be where our wisdom comes from, our being dependent wholly on him. Amen.